The teaching text for today comes from Habakkuk 3.2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are mighty and you are awesome and that you reveal yourself to us. I thank you for your power and for your work, for your word. Lord, we just ask that as you teach us today that we would have open hearts. I pray that you would um, stir in us a hunger for the things of you, um, for the things that are on your heart. Lord, would you deepen a passion in our hearts? And I pray, God, that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, that we would... um, crave you and your word and your truth, um, that we would invite and welcome your work in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, I just pray for John as he brings us um, the teaching that you would uh, inspire him and that you would uh, even teach him through the text as well and um, give him the words to say that we need to hear and receive. And I just thank you that you are with us. And we pray that you would be honored and delighted with our response to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Ashley. Y'all can be seated. Uh, do you remember being a kid and going to visit somebody else's house and their mom says they're going to make spaghetti? And you're like, great, I love spaghetti. And you sit down at, the, at their family table and you're eating their mom's spaghetti and it's like, this is weird. There's, I know this is spaghetti, but there's something very different about this. And so... You go home and you say, Mom, what's the deal with this? As it turns out, you grew up in a Prego family and you had dinner with a Ragu family. And uh, a very disturbing experience for a young person. Um, I remember I had a friend over to swim at my parents' house when I was a little kid. And my mom made grilled cheese sandwiches. My mom makes great grilled cheese sandwiches. Really melty cheese. And my friend was petitioning my mom for some Heinz 57 sauce. A couple of questions. First, who has Heinz 57 sauce? And two, who puts that on a grilled cheese sandwich? And uh, it's so weird. You grow up with things that you think are normal, and then you go to someone else's house, you get beyond your family experience, and for good, bad, and indifferent, like, things are just different. Your normal was different than somebody else's normal. Every family has quirks and personality traits and experiences and histories that inform the family culture and how the family behaves together. Uh, Were you to come over to uh, my family of origin, my parents' house, on a holiday, uh, you would notice a number of interesting things. Some people, are the Cavooties here? Okay. Okay, you've seen this, okay? Uh, The Cavooties have gone to my parents' house on Thanksgiving. We actually weren't able to make it. We had a, it doesn't matter. But... uh, (laughs) We didn't want to go through the family traditions. We were with my wife's family, Emily's family. But uh, at the Odom house, my parents' house, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter, one of the things that we do before a big meal, and big meals are a thing for us, is everybody holds hands, my, my aunt and uncle, my siblings, everyone who's there and everyone who's married in, and we sing. So at Thanksgiving, every year, it's Father, we thank Thee, and bless the Lord, oh my soul. And then uh, at Easter, it's always he lives, and then I forget the other one. But every single time we do this since like 1895, uh, like we've been doing this, and that's our family thing. Another interesting Odom thing is there's a lot of massaging that happens for some reason. So like after a meal, someone is going to plant in front of my father who gives these horrible, like, penetrating thumb massages into your shoulders. It's dreadful. I don't know why anyone would like it. 
Uh, if my brother Joey's in town, he will take off his shoes and his socks and his size 15 feet will be on somebody else and like my sister will be rubbing his feet. Like it's normal for us, but your response tells me it is indeed weird. <laughs> totally not normal. Now, none of my family is here today, so another thing that we do <laughs> is... <laughs> With my brother Joey especially, but either one of my brothers, would we call each other, we, <laughs> we imitate family members. So uh, my like nine-year-old nephew is doing this now too. So we'll, I'll call my brother Joey and I'll do my Jan Odom voice, which is, hello, Jonathan, it's your mama. <laughs> or uh, we'll do the Phil Odom, which is at the end of the call, well, Talk to you later, big boy. Every time. That's Phil Odom. Sometimes I'll lead off with Marie Smith. My, my grandma comes here a lot of times on Sunday mornings, and she has a very distinctive hello. Hello. <laughs> or occasionally we'll bring in the other grandma, Grandma Ruth, uh, who is, well, how do you do? <laughs> and if you meet any of these people, it's a really good impression. That's one of the things that, that we do in our family. But there are like more serious issues, things that I grew up with and things that you grew up with that are normal for you. How your family handles conflict, what you can and cannot talk about. You know what the political conversations are going to be like at the family table. There are things that are normal for you based on the quirks and the personality and the family history and the experiences of, of your family. And so as we grow into adulthood, we have the choice of, of like part of being well and maturing is learning to name those things about our family that we are great that we want to keep, and those things about our family that are not so great that we want to throw out altogether or to alter. And all of us, no matter like how healthy or unhealthy your family has been, we go through this kind of uh, experience, this kind of ritual of, of hopefully, as we grow into adulthood, learning to be well and learning to make sense out of our own family story. And just as each family has quirks and, and, and experiences that give shape and value and color and personality uh, to you as an individual. Each church has its own personality and history and stories and experiences that give that church a, a unique flavor, a unique personality. We're all on the same team. I like to brag on other churches and other pastors publicly as often as I can because we're not in opposing tribes. We're on the same team. But for this local church, every church has its own story. And so We've been meeting, this is our 40th Sunday as a church. And I, I tweeted the other day, 40 is a biblical number. I have no idea what the significance of it is for us, but it's been an awesome year. It's been a great year of, of learning and, and study and stretching and, and making a new relationships and doing things that didn't work very well at all and, and all kinds of things. It's been a great year. And so I thought, as we get close to ending our first year, where we've been meeting for 10 months, what a good opportunity to kind of retell our own story. What are the scriptures? What are the values? What are the stories that have kind of given shape and color and personality to how we are behaving and what we're aspiring to be as a congregation? And so, um, like all good pastors, I just ripped off the title. Thank you, Jason, from something else. So we're calling this month, uh, This Is Us. Just kind of telling our story. I've not seen the television show even one time, so I don't know if it's a good reference or a bad reference, but a lot of people seem to be weeping watching This Is Us. Um, so we're going to tell our story, and I'm going to tell our story in terms of four hungers, four hungers. And today we're talking about 
a hunger for spiritual awakening, which takes us to this text from Habakkuk. How many, I mean, I know you guys all love Habakkuk. You've got the whole thing memorized, but uh, give you a little context for uh, the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a minor prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, his, his book is three chapters long. Habakkuk is a prophet in the last decades of the kingdom of Judah before they were exiled. So, to give you a quick history of ancient Israel, they were a united kingdom under David. Uh, the, the people worshipped false gods, and it led to the kingdom being split into the, the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had been attacked, and uh, the people had been exiled by the Assyrian Empire, and now you've got the remnants of the people of Judah living around Jerusalem, and now the ba- things have gotten really, really bad. And before the Babylonians come to wipe things out, Habakkuk is this guy who's a prophet. And unlike other prophets in the Old Testament, Habakkuk is not like a mouthpiece of God to the people. So you take Isaiah, for example, and Isaiah is always saying, well, this is what the sovereign Lord says, and he's delivering a message from God to the people. Habakkuk is just duking it out with God personally. Habakkuk is someone who is seeing that Judah has gone far astray from their calling. They've been entrusted with the promises of God. They've been entrusted with this great task from God to use their power to bless the nations. And those who are given this tremendous task have squandered it. They've worshipped false gods. And as a result of their unfaithfulness to God, there's injustice in the land and there's violence in the land. And Habakkuk, who's kind of paying attention to God and God's standards and paying attention to the reality of the people, is heartbroken and he's a little bit hacked off about how things are going. And so his book is a conversation with God characterized by lament, which is a fancy way of saying he's whining, he's complaining, he's hacked off. And worse than this, just the state of things, he's feeling incensed that God appears to be doing nothing about this. His people are unfaithful, there's injustice and violence in the land, and God just seems to be lounging around doing nothing. This is Habakkuk 1-2. He's beginning his lament against God. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen, or I cry out to you, violence, but you don't save. He says, I'm, 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 I'm crying out. I'm trying to get your attention here, but nothing seems to be changing. Habakkuk felt a similar level of frustration with the people of Judah that many people in our time feel about the church, uh, irritated. You know, people feel like the church is hypocritical. We talk about love. God is love. Um, this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us, and yet we can be so mean And we can be so judgmental, and people see that hypocrisy and just want to write us off. Many people feel like the church is corrupt. Obviously, the the Catholic church has been embroiled in a lot of scandals uh, of of abuse in the last uh, decades. It's just horrible, the feeling that the church is corrupt. Some people feeling like uh, pastors are out just to, to, to use their platform to get rich, and so they're talking about flying around on jets and making a case for that. There's a sense that the church is corrupt. There are abuses of power that have been highly publicized. Sometimes uh, people feel like the church is impotent. We've got no moral authority. We are just as, as broken, and we're not doing well. We're doing even worse in some cases than people who don't know Jesus and aren't a part of the church. We have no power. 
There's a sense that the church is idolatrous, that we're falling in love with all the wrong things, whether it's taking back our country or having political power or using our platform to make a name for ourselves. People feel like the church is idolatrous. Or perhaps worst of all, that the church is just utterly apathetic, that we don't care about things as we should. This was the complaint that God uh, threw at uh, the church in Laodicea in uh, Revelation chapter 3. Let's read that here. God says to the church, I know your deeds that you're neither hot, cold, nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. God just eviscerates them with His words. You're so milk toast. you're so nothing, you're apathetic. And all the while, the world grows more confused and more violent and more tribalistic. Habakkuk feels the frustration about the people of Judah that many people, and maybe many of this, us in this room, feel about the church in 2018. And he takes this complaint to God. But what I love about Habakkuk's lament is that he's not just whining uh, to get it off his chest. He's lamenting with hope. He's lamenting with hope, and he petitions God to take action. And that gets us to the verse uh, that we just read, that Ashley just read in Habakkuk chapter 3. He says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. Habakkuk has grown up in, in the tribe. He's grown up hearing the stories of old, how the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt, and God led them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. How when, when Pharaoh and his people were chasing them and they came up to the Red Sea, the Lord opened up the waters and they walked through on dry ground, and behind them the waters came down on their enemies he knew the story of going to Sinai where God revealed His law to them and He showed up in smoke and fire and the people trembled. He led them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, how they entered into the country and they vanquished their enemies and God raised up judges to deliver them every time there was an oppressor. Habakkuk says, I've heard of your fame. I know every story out there. And I stand in awe of your deeds. I, I love all those things that you did back then. He communicates respect and worship. But then he takes this prayer to the next level. I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. But then he says, repeat them in our day and in our time make them known. He's asking this question, why do the great works of God always have to be a past tense reality? You may think about that for yourself. If you think about your relationship with God, why do the great moments with God always have to be like the thing that happened 25 years ago when you were at children's camp? And you're forever living off of one experience where you raised your hand and you felt like God had forgiven you. Why does it seem like all the great moves of God happened in the past? And he calls on God to move in the present by appealing to that past. And he concludes the prayer in wrath, remember mercy. He says, we've obviously done all kinds of things that would merit your punishment or your judgment, but in the middle of that, please don't treat us as our sins deserve. Earlier this year, uh, we studied the book of Acts. We did like the first 15 chapters, something like that, in 14 or 15 weeks. And we read great stories, of, you know, the day of Pentecost and 
uh, healings and, and ways that God uniquely equipped people to witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Read these amazing stories, and I found myself slightly frustrated with the, the realistic questions that many of us often followed the sermons with, like, that's great, but why don't we see anything like that these days? That's a really cool story, but obviously that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. And people were recognizing the dissonance between what we read in the Scripture, these great stories, I've heard of your fame, I stand in awe of it, and the reality of today that it's not, it doesn't seem to be happening in our day and in our time. Those are great stories, but that stuff doesn't happen anymore. And I love Habakkuk because he's like the prophet of the everyman. He's the one who's saying all the stuff that we're thinking already. I don't see that stuff anymore, but then he takes it to the next level. All those things you used to repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. I, uh, I love the Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, this is the, the last book. It's called The Last Battle, and it's been out for like 60 years, so I'm not going to give any spoiler alerts here, okay? Um, and in the first six books, we see, these, uh, we see a land that's created, we see a land that's in peril, and the, the messianic figure is, is a lion named Aslan, and Aslan arranges for these children to come into his world and, and uses them to be like deliverers. And in the last book, uh, the last battle, the final king of the land of Narnia is named Tyrion, and things have gone quite poorly for Narnia, and he finds himself tied up against a tree. He's the last king. Uh, a, a, an imposter is on the throne. A fake Aslan is running about. People are deeply confused, and, and Tyrion finds himself powerless in the face of his challenges. He's been taken by the enemy and tied to a tree. And as he stands there, he calls to mind all of the things that had happened in the lore of Narnia, the, the history of his land. I'm going to read just a bit to you. I read it to you. Obviously, this is fictional, but stories help uh, make sense of our own life and make sense of our own story. Uh, after that, the fire must have been put out, for the light vanquished, vanished quite suddenly, and Tyrion was once more alone with the cold and the darkness. He thought of other kings who had lived and died in Narnia in old times, and it seemed to him that none of them had ever been so unlucky as himself. He thought of his great-grandfather's great-grandfather, King Rillian, who'd been stolen away by a witch when he was a young prince and kept hidden for years, but then it had all come right in the end, for two mysterious children had suddenly appeared from the land beyond the world's end and had rescued him. It's not like that with me, he said. And he thought to himself, he went back further and thought about Rillian's father, Caspian, whose wicked uncle had tried to murder him and how Caspian fled away into the woods. But that story, too, had come right in the end. For Caspian, too, had been helped by children. Only there were four of them that time who came from somewhere beyond the world and fought a great battle and set him on his father's throne. But that was all long ago, said Tyrion to himself. That sort of thing doesn't happen now. Then he remembered, for he'd always been good at history, how those same four children who'd helped Caspian been in Narnia over a thousand years uh, earlier, and they'd done the most remarkable thing of all, for then they defeated the terrible white witch and entered the, ended the hundred years of winter, and there they reigned as kings and queens, and their reign was the golden age of Narnia, and Aslan had come into that story a lot too. He'd come into all the other stories now. 
as Tyrion remembered. He said, Aslan, children from another world, they've always come in when things were at their worst. Man, if they could only come now. And he called out, Aslan, 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 come and help us now. But the darkness and the cold and the quietness went on just the same. He said, let me be killed, cried the king. I ask nothing for myself, but come and save all of Narnia. And still there was no change in the night or the wood, but there began to be a kind of change inside Tyrion. Without knowing why, he began to feel a faint hope. And he felt somehow stronger. Aslan, Aslan, he whispered. If you will not come yourself, at least send the helpers from beyond the world, or let me call them. Let my voice carry beyond the world. And then hardly knowing that he was doing it, he suddenly cried out in a great voice, Children, children, friends of Narnia, quick, come to me across the worlds. I call to you, I, Tyrion, king of Narnia, lord of Caer Paravel, and emperor of the Lone Islands. And suddenly he was plunged into a dream. Do you want me to just keep reading? Like, this is better than the rest of this sermon. I'm just kidding. I loved reading this and. I mean, I've read that six times, and every time I'm very openly weeping. Um, He's praying Habakkuk's prayer. This kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. I've heard all those old stories, but why can't you do it now? And he cries out. There have been numerous moments in Christian history since the resurrection of Jesus and the descent of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost where a deep sense of restlessness and discontent has crystallized in a group of people, where they have been deeply broken over the state of things, and that brokenness has led them to cry out to God on behalf of their world. They're not okay with the status quo, and they have this common resolution to beat down the door of heaven until something changes. Some of you have heard me tell the story of what happened in the Scottish Isles called the Hebrides in the early 1950s, how there was a prevailing sense in these islands that the church was losing, that God was losing. You have six blue-haired little old ladies in the church. The community had young adults, but none of them cared about God, and none of them were in church. Till this pair of sisters, one was 88, one was 90, one of them was blind, uh, resolved and covenanted to each other, we're going to cry out to God on behalf of our community. And twice a week from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m., they cried out to God on behalf of their little isles, these forgettable little places in the middle of nowhere in Scotland. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, they prayed and they cried out, and the, and the, the town pastors heard what was happening, and they got some lay men together, and they coordinated with the sister, we, okay, we know when you're going to pray, we're going to pray too. And they get together, and they begin to pray, and they've prayed for hours, and there's a sense of we're hitting the brick wall, and nothing is happening. And then finally, this blacksmith stands up, and he's kind of like a plain-spoken, gruff guy, and he prays this prayer of frustration. He said, God, you made a promise to pour water upon him that's thirsty and floods upon the dry ground, and Lord, it's not happening. I don't know how these other men stand with you, but if I know my own heart, I know that I am thirsty. You've promised to pour water on him who's thirsty. He's quoting Isaiah. And if you don't do it, how can I ever believe in you again? Your honor is at stake. You are a covenant-keeping God. Fulfill your covenant engagement. Everyone's like, whoa, we don't talk to God like that. He says amen, and the barn they're in begins to shake violently. 
A pitcher falls off the wall. It's late. It's early, early, early in the morning. They open up the barn doors, and people are streaming to them. And it begins this three-year season of awakening that's documented in all of the newspapers. It's been thoroughly documented in history how not the church put on any kind of fancy programming, but God took the field. That's the language that they use. The, the Spirit of God was at work awakening love for Jesus in people's hearts. And the most ridiculous stories you've ever heard, those things that you always hope for but never happen, were happening in this community. And so that old teacher who was mean to the core was changed in an instant. The son who was running far from God and was playing in a band, doing a show in a bar at night, is arrested in his spirit in the middle of the show and has this sense, I, I think I need to leave. The bandmates go, where are you going to go? He said, I think I'm going to church. He goes to the church, the closest church with the lights on. He peers through the keyhole. He sees a man on his face, and it's his own father crying out to God on behalf of his son. Father and son go home. They open the door. Mom is on her face in front of the fire, crying out to God to save this wayward son. New Testament kind of stuff, the kind of stuff that often takes years for God to do was happening in days and in weeks. The Spirit of God was moving. One person said that revival or a spiritual awakening is the acceleration of the normal activity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is how uh, the, the church in the Hebrides characterized what happened among them. This is Duncan Campbell. He says, in, the, in writing of the movement, I'd like first to state what I mean by revival as witnessed in the Hebrides. I do not mean a time of religious entertainment with crowds gathering to enjoy an evening of bright singing. I do not mean sensational or spectacular advertising. In a God-sent revival, you don't need to spend money on advertising. I don't mean high-pressure methods to get men into an inquiry room. In a revival, every service is an inquiry room. The road and the hillside become sacred spots to many when the winds of God blow. Revival or an awakening is a going of God among His people and an awareness of God laying hold of the community. Since God is doing this. They've observed throughout uh, Christian history, but, but revivalists have studied trends uh, in, in the history of awakening, and, and the, the church in the Hebrides experienced this to be true. There were four requirements or four traits of revival. The first was that there was a deep repentance in the church. The, the church in the Hebrides quoted Psalm 24, uh, Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts. And so they began to ask, are my hands clean? Are my, is my heart pure? The second requirement or trait of revival is a conviction about God's own faithfulness. They were recalling, calling to mind the things that God had promised we remember in uh, Acts 2, Peter says, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. They're calling to mind God's promises of the past. The third requirement or trait of revival is an openness for God to work in God's own way. I got to meet with a, a pastor from Syria who is seeing incredible growth among uh, the church in Syria. And he said, for years and years and years, we prayed for revival, and we expected that it would be like a Billy Graham kind of revival. Instead, God sent ISIS. And in the middle of it, thousands of people are coming to trust in Jesus. It was a revival through suffering. 
And then the fourth kind of requirement we see of revival is a demonstration of the divine. And people, you read it so many times, people could not explain what was happening. In the Hebrides, there was no speaking in tongues, there was no healing, but there was this corporate sense that God's here and doing stuff in the lives of people. Churches with, that were like previously 10 to 20 elderly people have 600 young adults crammed in for the prayer service in the middle of the week. Crotchety, judgmental people were instantaneously being changed. There's an experience of power and authority and life change. Something was happened that gripped not just the church people's attention, but gripped the attention of the community. And they, what happened was that they'd had a fresh encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. They said the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is how they characterized what was happening among them, is more than anything the coronation as king of Jesus in the hearts of the believer and the hearts of the church. Jesus was being crowned as king and taking his position of authority in the church and in the community. That restlessness, that discontent crystallized. Uh, it, it led to repentance. It led to a memory of God's past and openness, a manifestation of the power of God in the community. It said, God, we've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, but why can't you do it now? Repeat these things in our day, in our time, make them known. As we tell the story of our church and as we are writing our own story in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, my prayer for the, for the people of Cornerstone is that we would be characterized by a hunger for spiritual awakening. I am tired of, be, of gimmicky church. I am tired of doing cute things to try to get people interested. I am tired of, of anything but an experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. Why else are we here except to have an encounter with the divine? But also recognize that we're not there yet, and I'm not there yet. The hunger is not our heartbeat. That's not the thing that characterizes us as a congregation. We're not ready. Right now, we're comfortable, and we haven't asked we haven't asked yet. Corey Russell, who's, who's a, a speaker and a, like a professional intercessor, prayer warrior, prayed, God, would you constantly wound me with fresh hunger for you all the days of my life? The early church was known for, for crying out to God with one voice together. As we look at the world right now and some of the great awakening movements that are happening in the world right now and in places like China and South Korea and Nigeria and Argentina, that hunger for God has, has shown up in the way that the church prays together. They raise their voices together in crying out to God, we've heard of your fame, we stand in awe of your deeds, but would you do that stuff now? I want to do something that will likely make most of us uncomfortable, including me. Um, the church is a hospital. We're all coming because we're wounded and we're learning to be well, but part of a hospital is rehab. And in rehab, you're put through these exercises that stretch you, that make you uncomfortable, but in the service of making you strong. And I'd like to do something in, in, a, in a rehab kind of sense of being Christ hospital. I'm going to lead us through an exercise of, of doing what we've seen the early church do and doing praying how people are praying all around the world. This is going to be uncomfortable, but that's okay. This is not our norm. I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm not trying to manipulate you. We're going to do something to stoke some embers. I just invite you to, to give yourself permission to try something new. 
So I'm going to invite you to stand, and if you want to spread out just a bit uh, in, in your row, you can. We're going to do this. I'm going to give you three prompts to pray, three prompts to pray. The first one is I'm going to, I'm going to invite you for 25 seconds to pray out loud, your voice out loud, and ask God to give you a, a burden for spiritual hunger. Ask God to make him hungry to know you. Ask God, is the way Corey Russell said it, wound me with fresh hunger for you. Some of you are like, oh gosh, this is the worst. We're going to try it anyway. For 25 seconds, you can try it. I'm going to wrap up that section, and then I'm going to ask you to spend 25 seconds praying out loud for somebody else in the, in the church. Somebody else. You're not going to like, you don't have to like come up to them, lay hands on them, just on your own. I'm going to invite you to pray the same prayer for somebody else for 25 seconds. And then after that, we're going to pray for 25 seconds for someone that you know that doesn't know Jesus and pray that they would have an encounter with the Lord Jesus. Um, ben and Cavett are going to, are going to kind of play underneath us to give us a little like social lubricant, which I sure appreciate. Um, but I'm going to invite you uh, to, to make yourself uncomfortable. We're talking about less than 90 seconds because I chopped five seconds off the 30, okay? And uh, I'm going to do it too, which makes me just as uncomfortable as it makes you. We're going to pray first right now that each of us would have a hunger to know Jesus, that God would give us the gift of spiritual hunger, okay? Ready, set, go. Go.